This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? It's hump day. It's been a good week. How are you? I haven't been up to much. Just weathered some storms last night. It's cold today. You know, that good Louisiana weather. Yeah, I heard you guys got some like bad storms that rolled through. Yeah, I had to get up and go wake my roommate up to say, come downstairs. I think there might be a tornado. Well, I'm just glad that you guys are safe and, you know, bad weather aside. I know working is never fun, makes for long weeks, but it's important that you guys are safe and both of you avoided a tornado. I know, especially living in New Orleans, that can be pretty scary when you're talking about tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that. So, yeah, I'm glad it was a quick little storm and uh, now it's cold outside again. It's like winter came with the storm. So how are you? What's been going on? Y'all are kind of all under the weather. Yes, COVID has finally hit our house. We have made it since 2020 without getting it. This is the first time we've had it. I, as far as I know, don't have it currently, but my wife and the kiddo both have it. And I'm going to take another test tomorrow just to make sure I didn't catch it. Because when you have a four-year-old with COVID and they're just coughing all in your face, I'm guessing the odds are in my favor that I'm going to get it. So I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens. But Luckily, the wife is feeling good. Uh, not a whole lot of stuff going on with her, which is good. But Millie's got this little cough that she can't shake. So just hoping that it turns around quick because it's heartbreaking to hear her just, you know, she calls them the chokes. So she's like, Dad, I cut the chokes. <laughs> so it's I know, so cute. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to see that. But other than that, she's been good. She's playing. She's drinking. She's eating. So, you know, could be a lot worse. So grateful that she's doing OK. Well, hopefully it stays away from you. But. <laughs> Good job for making it as a family of three with a toddler and not getting COVID until 2023. I know. I was like an accomplishment these days. I know. I had some hubris. I was like, I must be like immune to it or something. Like everybody I know (laughs) has gotten it. 
And tomorrow he will have COVID. Right. Yet, everybody, mark my word. <laughs> now, side note though, are you also getting ready for Hogs for the Cause? Yes, I am. We've started fundraising and Hogs for the Cause, you know, is my fundraiser that I do each year um, in New Orleans to raise awareness and money for families whose children have been diagnosed with brain cancer. And so we host a two-day festival each year at the end of March, beginning of April, and do competitions. And there's about 90 teams, and we work all weekend, and we sell food, and, you know, just try to have a good time and raise awareness about pediatric brain cancer. Well, that is awesome, and it's such a noble cause. I mean, I know I donated last year, and I think we were just starting the podcast last year, like right as you wrapped up last year's event. Mm -hmm. So if people are listening and they're interested in donating or supporting because it is a really great cause, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So we'll actually post, um, I have a rally bound website, um, that will go straight to hogs for the cause. You just log in, donate any amount, every dollar counts. Um, but that link will be in the show notes. So if you have it in your heart and you want to do a good thing for some kids with brain cancer, help us out. Yeah, definitely. If you are listening and especially if you are a charitable person or, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that this particular subject touches a lot of people's lives and it's tragic and these families need as much support and as many resources as they can get. So if you do have the extra couple bucks, you know, if it's five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever, you're helping to change a child's life. So go into the show notes, click that link. If you can help, we would definitely, definitely appreciate it. And I know the kids would too. Yeah, and I think we should add um, a link to the just the the regular Hogs for the Cause website. That way, if you or any family you know has someone who is going through this, you can actually get on their website and apply for a grant. And they usually reach out and it helps, you know, pretty much right away. It helps with food and room and board and things like that. And it's known, it's starting to get bigger nationally. I think there's one in Atlanta. I think there might be one in Nashville or somewhere in Tennessee. So it is something that's becoming bigger and raising more awareness about this. Yeah. And again, these families just need all the support that they can get. And, you know, being a dad, I cannot imagine having to go through that. I will share a story. I cried like a baby. I text my wife before we knew she had COVID. She was at work and I was on Instagram just scrolling through reels. And there was this little girl named Delilah who had been battling pediatric cancer for four years of her life. She was like eight years old. Mm -hmm. And she loves that song. Hey there, Delilah. Oh my gosh. I saw that. You see that video? And in that moment, I was like, don't cry, don't cry. And then I was like, you know what? It's okay. Let it go. It's okay. And I just started crying so hard. And then I text my wife. I was like, I'm sitting here just crying so hard right now. But just, you know, again, being a dad and thinking about having to like deal with that with my kid, it's, it's one of my greatest fears. So I know if that were me, I would want all the support and all the love and all the resources that I could get. So if you're down for helping out, definitely help out. Yes, we will appreciate it. Um, our team is named Pig Latin. Definitely check out Hogs for the Cause main website. And if you can donate, check out the Rallybound link in the show notes. I will be forever grateful. And so will the kids and their families. Well, that is enough of pulling on your heartstrings for the beginning of the episode, right? <laughs> right. This is a true crime podcast. Yes, we want you to help. But I think it, we should get into the nitty gritty This week is my episode, and I have to tell you, Olivia, I've been really fascinated with kind of going back in time. When it was my turn a couple of weeks ago, I did The Vampire of Sacramento, which was like the late 70s, and now I'm going back even further, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but we got some real strong responses on that Vampire of Sacramento episode. I was with everybody. 
Yeah, you can go back further in time, but I don't need you to go real deep. I don't need you to go deeper this week. I need you to kind of lighten it a little bit. I was a heavy hitter last week. So I will tell you, this one is a little bit lighter. But again, this is another one that I had never heard of. And as I went through the story, yes, there's the crime, but there is some really unique aspects about the period of time, the community and things like that, that really kind of drew me into it. So I'm really excited to share it with you and share it with our listeners and see what you think about it. Well, let's just dive right in and let's see what you got. I love when it's your week. I feel like I'm listening to such a good story. I find myself just clung to the screen. I feel the same way about yours. And, you know, that's, I think my favorite thing about the show is like, you know, I don't know what you're going to bring. You don't know what I'm going to bring. And so we get here and it's kind of like, Ooh, like fill me in. I want to know. So, yeah. Well, this week's case takes place in Gaffney, South Carolina in 1968. Now Gaffney is a small town where everybody knew each other. However, at this period in time, like every other Southern town, segregation was still very much reality. In fact, Gaffney schools were just beginning to integrate at this point in history. And if you're not familiar with that term, that finally meant that Caucasian kids, kids of color were finally going to start going to school together, taking classes in the same building. Now, on February 8th, 1968, a phone call came into the editor of the Gaffney Ledger, Mr. Bill Gibbons. The mysterious caller told Gibbons that he had three different stories to tell him and asked that he take notes on three separate pieces of paper. Gibbons didn't recognize the caller's voice, but he was definitely intrigued. He pulled out three pieces of paper and numbered them one to three as he listened. The man then gave a name, Nancy Carroll Paris. He followed quickly with a set of directions, downstream from the local Ford Road Bridge in the water on the downhill side. The man then said, that's where you'll find the body. Then another name, Nancy Christine. Again, the caller gave directions to Chain Gang Road, a back road in the area. This time, he informed Gibbons that the body would be found under a pile of brush. Finally, the last name, Annie Lucille Dedmond. He also provided a date and the name of a road, May 1967, Jerusalem Road. Now, Gibbons' first thought was that the call was a prank, but the caller told him not to go alone. He had to bring the authorities. So just to be sure, Gibbons shared the notes with the local sheriff and they headed out in a patrol car to Ford Road Bridge. So before we go any further, I want to stop there and kind of get your initial impression. Let's say you are this editor for this local paper. You get this phone call. It's three names. They're telling you there's bodies. Like what would be going through your head? This is going to be a great episode for Check the Locks podcast. In 1968? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, no. I would be like, what in the world just fell into my lap? And why did someone call here and not like call the police? And if I show up to these places, what am I going to find out? Do I believe this person? Is it a joke? Do I get the police involved? Like, I wouldn't even know what to do. Yeah. And I had the same kind of thoughts going through my head as well, where as the editor, I would definitely be intrigued and I would want to check it out. But it's just such a crazy premise that I would be like, it's got to be a prank phone call. Yeah, for sure. But then in 1967, did people joke? I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. Now, again, they headed to Ford Road Bridge and they did that because of the locations listed, the bridge had the easiest access. There in the water was the body of a nude female. Her hair was in her face and her legs were spread slightly. She had cigarette burns on her back. Upon reviewing the body, it was determined that the victim had been strangled to death. And the medical examiner determined that she had been dead for no more than a day before the call came into Bill Gibbons' office. The victim was identified as 24-year-old Nancy Carol Paris, the same name that the caller had given to Bill Gibbons. She had last been seen walking her dog the day before. Now, at this point, 
Police knew they had to investigate the second name and they headed to Chain Gang Road. Now, this road was only a few miles outside of town and it was overgrown with kudzu and Spanish moss. Police began to search the dense forest area looking for the brush pile described by the caller. As the deputies combed the area, they made a shocking discovery. A woman's foot was found sticking out from the undergrowth. Police estimated that the body had been in that brush for over a week. And like the first victim, the body was nude with cigarette burns on her back. And again, the cause of death seemed to be strangulation. These are the remains of 14-year-old Nancy Christine Reinhardt, another of the names that the caller had given. Her mother had reported her missing a week before, but the police assumed that she was a runaway. Now, Nancy Christine went by Tina, so when the sheriff was shown Bill Gibbons' notes, he didn't put two and two together. Police now had two bodies, and they knew they had to investigate the third claim. Now, Jerusalem Road was in a neighboring county, so the sheriff called their local office. They shared that on Jerusalem Road, the body of 32-year-old Annie Deadman had been found six months prior. Like Paris and Reinhardt, Annie Deadman had been found nude and strangled to death. Police also learned that Deadman's husband, Roger, had been arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. He was currently serving nine months of an 18-year sentence. Immediately, Gaffney police believed that the wrong man was behind bars and the real killer was still out there. Police now knew that a murderer was loose in their backyard. So again, I want to stop right there for just a second. So, you know, you think this is a prank, you're getting these names, but then as you're going to these scenes, one by one, you're finding the bodies of these women, and then you call the county where this third road is, and you find out that that information matches perfectly. I think for me, this really creeped me out, because this is well before the term serial killer is even coined, right? This is back when they were mass murderers, because... Mm Serial killer isn't used until like the 70s. So I would just be like, what is happening in this like tiny little town, you know? Oh, yeah. And I wonder how quickly they let Annie's husband, Roger, out of prison. Oh, we'll get to that for sure. Okay, good. But yeah, this is crazy. And like, who's the caller? Yeah, it's crazy. And how do you track a call back in 1967? I got a lot of questions. Now, the police were left with a bunch of questions. Was the caller, in fact, the killer or someone who just knew who the killer was? And would there be more victims to come? As the community began to learn about the murders, fear began to grow. The idea that your neighbor could be a killer was a terrifying thought. In a town where police normally dealt with petty crime and expired fishing licenses, this new challenge seemed especially daunting. The Gaffney Sheriff's Office decided to call in South Carolina State Police for assistance. Now, at this point, they interviewed Nancy Christine Reinhardt's mother again, believing that the killer may be someone that she knew. Nancy Christine was last seen walking home from a friend's house. And as the investigation continued, the official cause of death came back from the medical examiner. All three victims had been strangled by some type of device, not the killer's hands. It was also determined that Nancy Christine Reinhardt and Nancy Carol Paris had been raped. State police then turned their sights to Paris's husband. They learned that on the day of her disappearance, Paris and her husband had gotten into an argument. To cool off, Paris took the dog out for a walk. Neighbors were able to confirm the husband's story and he was cleared as a suspect. And as the investigation continued, tips continued to come in. Neighbors suspecting neighbors, girlfriends suspecting boyfriends. The community was truly on edge when a legitimate tip finally came through. A man called and said they had been sitting in his car near the Ford Road Bridge on the night that Paris's body was dumped into the river. The tipster described a tall white male dropping something large over the side of the bridge. He described the vehicle as a sedan, but because it was at night, he couldn't give a color or a model. But police were immediately suspicious. Why would this tipster wait so long to call? 
And when they investigated, they found that the man was married and had been fooling around with another woman that night. She was also married. So this guy's having an affair. They're both married to other people fooling around by the bridge and just happen to see something crazy. Yeah, like I'm not going to say anything, but now that it's becoming a thing and all across the news, now you kind of have to. Yeah, and the man said that, you know, at first he was like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I don't really know what I saw. But as the story began to grow and the investigation began to grow, he knew he had to say something. Again, the tension in the community was high and the police were desperate to find the killer. Also, police began to wonder about Bill Gibbons. Could it be possible that he was, in fact, the killer? Besides, the bodies would have never been discovered without the phone calls to him. And at this point, they decided to put a tap on Bill Gibbons' office line, hoping that the unknown caller may ring again. As they monitored the lines, they were shocked when Gibbons informed the sheriff that he had received another call, but this time on his home phone. Gibbons again took notes. The caller shared that he was upset that Roger Deadman was in jail for the murder that he had committed. He told Gibbons that he witnessed Annie and Roger Deadman get into an argument at a local donut shop. Annie got in the car and left Roger there. The caller then said that he was able to stop her because of erratic driving. He also shared where some of her personal belongings could be found. Now, this was all information that only the killer could know. Gibbons told the caller that he had to stop and he asked him to meet. The caller declined, saying, they have to kill me like the dog that I am. Then the most chilling sentence of the entire call. And if they don't catch me, there will be more deaths. And the next morning, the killer's promise was fulfilled. On February 13th, 1968, 15-year-old Opal Buxton had been quicker than her siblings at completing her morning chores. Because of this, she was the first out the door to school. As she walked nearly a quarter mile towards the bus stop, her siblings trailed about 50 yards behind. As they walked, a white male on the road grabbed Opal and shoved her into the trunk of his car. He slammed the trunk and sped off down the road. Opal's sister, Gracie, was able to give a description of the man in his vehicle. It was a blue sedan. Now, it's important to remember that Gaffney, South Carolina, was essentially broken into two towns at this time. We mentioned segregation at the beginning of the episode, and because of that, again, Caucasians and people of color live separately. So, you're in this one town, but it's essentially white folks get this side of town, people of color get this side, right? Prior to the kidnapping of Opal Buxton, all of the killer's victims had been young white women. And while this wasn't known at the time, because remember, serial killer studying and things like that didn't come until the 70s, a serial killer or mass murder crossing racial boundaries is incredibly rare. Buxton being taken was a sign that absolutely no one was safe. Everyone was in danger. Police shared the description Gracie had given, a medium-billed white male driving a late 50s blue sedan. Now, in a time of segregation, something remarkable happened. Opal Buxton had just been taken, and there was a chance that she may still be alive. In an attempt to find her, racial prejudice and differences seemed to disappear in that moment, and the entire town joined together to search for the missing girl. Men of different races paired up to drive the country back roads while others searched on foot. Now, among the men searching were friends Henry Transow and Lester Skinner. Transow was a local golf pro and Skinner was a game warden. As they were searching, they turned off onto a dirt road headed towards the woods when they noticed a man in a vehicle matching the description parked off of the road. As they drove past, they found a place to turn around. And when the men circled back, the car was pulling out in front of them. They followed the man down the road where he eventually pulled into a driveway of a home. 
Now, Transow and Skinner took down the license plate and immediately drove off to find a phone to call it in. Because remember, we're talking 1968, right? There's no iPhone in your pocket. There's no pagers. This is well before any of that. So you actually had to find a physical like pay phone or landline phone, some kind of hardwired phone. Once they received the call, authorities immediately headed to the home, but found that it was not the man that they were after's residence. The man in the vehicle must have known that he was being followed, pulled into the home's driveway, and used that to buy himself some time. But police did have Skinner and Transow take them back to the exact spot where they saw the car sitting in the woods. They searched, but found nothing. So at this point, police then decided, hey, we've got this license plate of the vehicle. Let's run it, see what comes back to you. And it came back as belonging to a local man, 30-year-old Leroy Martin. Now, before we talk a little bit about Leroy Martin, I just wanted to kind of get the thoughts that were in your head. Because for me, thinking about the story and thinking about how this unspeakable kind of act of tragedy managed to transcend these racial lines and really bring people together I think it speaks a lot to the resilience of us as like humans, you know, and when there's something really bad happening, we tend to kind of come together. You know, I had, maybe it's not the best example, but I also think about like something like 9-11, right? Like, right. Seems like on 9-11, people just stopped hating each other. And like we mourned together as a as a country. And I right. had a similar feeling with this. Whereas this town just being like something terrible is happening here. Like we this need is to- a child. We got to find her. Yeah. So I didn't know if you were having similar feelings or what you were yeah. thinking. It's a very interesting story, but I like that the community got together. I'm like going to lose my mind if you tell me that Gibbons is the murderer at the end of the day, but I'm ready to hear about who uh, Leroy Martin is. Well, Leroy Martin was well known in the community. He worked in the local textile mill and he drove a taxi part time. Now, Martin had been arrested for assaulting a teenage girl, but that had been over a decade ago. And when he finished the sentence, he came home, he got married and he had children. By all accounts, Leroy Martin was a family man and an upstanding member of the community. He didn't drink, he hadn't been in any more trouble, and he had a seemingly normal upbringing. Police knew that if Martin was the killer, he wasn't keeping Opal Buxton at home. He lived in a small house with his wife and three children, so there's not a lot of room to keep a kidnapping victim, you know? Police began surveilling Martin, but they had to do it carefully. Again, Gaffney was a very small town, so if you're being followed, you're probably going to notice. One car would tail for about two blocks and then turn off, while another car would pick him up and continue to follow. Now, during this time, Leroy Martin was actually followed into a diner. As detectives sat a few tables away, Martin sat reading the Gaffney Ledger. When the waiter asked how he was doing, Martin responded by saying, sometimes there ain't no news, and then sometimes people gotta go and do things to make news. Police also looked at Martin's time cards and found that he was away from work at the time of the previous three murders. They also found it strange that Martin was observed washing his car at night in February. It had now been five days since the disappearance of Opal Buxton, and it was highly likely that she was dead, and detectives had to watch Martin scrub away potential evidence. At this point, police made the decision to go back to the spot in the woods where Martin and his car were spotted. They also enlisted members of the community to assist with the search, and as the group was combing the woods, the body of Opal Buxton was discovered under a log. Like the previous victims, Buxton had been strangled, raped, and cigarettes burned her body. However, Opal Buxton had also been stabbed. Because of this, police believed that the brave 15-year-old girl had fought back against her killer. Police now knew for certain that Leroy Martin was in fact the Gaffney Strangler. They mounted up and headed to the textile mill where Martin was arrested on the spot. 
His coworkers were shocked to find that they had been working side by side with a literal monster, especially one specific female coworker. She told police that the day before, Martin had tried to get her to take a ride with him after work. The woman claimed that she almost went, but at the last minute she decided not to. And the realization that she could have potentially been his next victim set in. And I wanted to ask you, Olivia, like as a woman who's probably had male coworkers and things like that, like just the thought of, oh man, this guy was going to give me a ride home. I've known him. I've worked with him for like seven years, you know, and then literally 24 hours, you find out that he's strangling and raping and murdering these women. Like I would just be like, oh, oh, it was almost me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what the heck? When you were telling the story and talking about how she like almost got in the car and didn't, I'm like, oh yeah, that wouldn't be me because I'd be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm busy. I just cancel on everybody all the time. <laughs> I would love to, but no. If I could be like, mm, I thought about it for two seconds and now I'm good. No. I'm the same way. I'm a huge introvert. So it takes me like so much to get out of the house where I'm like, no, I don't want to take a ride. I want to go home and like sit on yeah, my couch. Just go home. I just want to go home. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm good. Now at this point, Martin was arrested, but they still lacked any solid physical evidence. If they were going to put him away for the murders, they would need a confession. And as police drove Martin to the state capitol, he began proclaiming his innocence from the back seat. However, investigators knew from the phone calls that if he was the killer, he wanted attention. So they decided not to respond. And when his cries of innocence got no attention, Martin began to share his dark secrets. He told detectives that he had murdered all four women the same way, by strangling them with his belt. Martin shared that he would drive around looking for women who were by themselves. And though the murders were grisly and horrific, what he did after was even worse. Leroy Martin told police that for seven to eight days after he murdered Nancy Christine Reinhardt, he would return to the body to sexually molest it. He also admitted to doing the same with the other victims. And to the disgust of police, they learned that Leroy Martin had attended Reinhardt's funeral and stayed for an extended period of time. Now, attending the funeral and basking in the aftermath of his crime was most likely exhilarating to him. And we know this because of these studies of serial killers that have been done you know, since the 70s. They want to go back to the scene of the crime. They want to get close to victims so they can kind of like relive it. And then also all these people are sad. They're putting this 14 year old girl on the ground and he's like, I did this. You know what I mean? It's, it's super, super dark. Leroy Martin was able to put on a normal facade while hiding the monster that lurked below the surface. He claimed to hear voices in his head and he told police that it wasn't him who committed the murders, but a darker Leroy Martin. He would eventually lead police to evidence of his crimes, like the clothing of his victims and the remains of Nancy Carroll Paris's poodle. Evidence presented at Martin's trial was used to help prove the innocence of Roger Dedman. Dedman was released in 1969 after a year in prison for a crime that he did not commit. Leroy Martin had two separate trials and he was found guilty on all four counts of murder. He would have been eligible for parole in 1988, but he was stabbed to death by another inmate on May 31st, 1972. And that's the story of the Gaffney Strangler. Okay. I mean, you went way back and you went pretty deep, but I will say the story overall is pretty neat. I think it's neat to me in a sense that since, you know, serial killers weren't really studied back then, and you don't really know the motives and why people do things the way that they do. I think the way the story is and how he calls and it's like, I feel like I'm watching an old time show trying to figure out these crimes. But then you went real, real deep 
and you had to talk about him going back and molesting the dead bodies. And that's just not cool. I was over here like gasping and like verbally out loud, like going <gasps> and just gagging. So gross. Yeah, it's really like dark stuff, you know, and I have to say, I think the thing that really gripped me about this case is number one, the time period, right? Because now it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm getting these phone calls. I can trace it. At least I know it's coming from a burner phone. This burner phone was probably bought from this location, which means this guy must have been in this area, right? Like, yeah, you know, or it's like we found these bodies, but they probably left DNA evidence. And this was all well before any of that. Mm hmm. Then the other thing that was really interesting to me as well is that this is almost a year before the Zodiac Killer. And the Zodiac okay. Killer famously, you know, wrote into the editor and had his puzzles and everything like that. But this is well before that. So the idea of this person who's like, I'm doing these terrible things. I'm living this double life where I'm a monster. Right. But I want credit for the monster that I am. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. like, it's just different when you go back and you look at this case and the way that police had to work this, it's so much different than now. And then you have that added element of like the community being like terrified yeah, and forget racism for like 20 minutes. Like we have to help each other out, you know? Yeah. I thought it was super, super interesting. Yeah. That's just like a scary time. And then to just, you know, if people didn't pay attention to details, like I feel like I'm still that type of person that pays attention to like license plates. And I'm always like just looking around and just overly cautious. I feel like and to just think that, like, back in the day, you had to just write down the license plate and remember these things and go to the phone and hope that you remember it correctly. Yeah. And it's also crazy to think that this community probably lived in these homes in this area for years and never thought about locking their doors yeah. and never mm -hmm. thought about, you know, somebody wanting to hurt them or anything like that. And then in an instant, this southern town goes from, like, we're just a small, quiet town to, like, Oh, anybody could be next or my yeah, kid chaos. could be next. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. This was a good one. So when it comes to the deadbolt test, I was wondering where you were going to fall because as I was going through this, yes, you know, it did take place in the late sixties, but also in the research, I was like, oh, this is hitting on some things that I know Olivia can be a little sensitive about or some of the fears that she has when we're talking about these things. So mm -hmm. I was really interested to see where this one landed for you. Yeah. I'm going to set this one at about a nine. And you pretty much read me like an open book. There's a lot of things about this. One is that they're all women. So I am of that demographic. But the other thing is, is the fact that no one is safe. It can be anyone at any time, at any age. Um, and that is really unsettling. And I think I put it as high as a nine, because if this was a person who was alive today and committing these murders... There's no telling if he would be caught more quickly because of the way that we can track people now. Or is he someone who is so clever enough that he is truly of a disturbed mind and a serial killer that he would get away with multiple murders had he been living in this day and age? And I think that his behaviors and what he was doing shows that he is really one of these really dark human beings that commit these well-known popular crimes that bring us into true crime, you know? Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I really hadn't thought about it, but he was writing in for validation. Like, I want you to know mm -hmm. that I'm the person mm -hmm. doing that or these crimes are being committed. And we do live in a society now where this would be on the news. It would be on Instagram. It would be on your Facebook news feed. Like what he was doing would be broadcast immediately. You know, the mm -hmm. media just latches onto these things and is like, 
here's everything we know about this, you know, and I'm thinking going back to like, you know, there was just that, uh, what was it? I think it was California. There was a serial killer going around shooting people, Mm -hmm. you know, just not too long ago, you know, and we get these things coming across your newsfeed constantly. It would be so different because he wouldn't have to search for that. I want people to know this is happening. Everybody would know. So would that embolden him? Would he take, yeah. you know, bigger swings and, and more heinous actions? And it's really interesting to think like the societal parallels between mm-hmm. then and now. Because like, would he become more clever and sharp knowing that in this day and age, he's going to get the attention that he's looking for. So would that make him like a, I guess, quote, smarter killer, like not leaving evidence, that kind of thing, really protecting the crime scene? Or would it be that he's so desperate of this attention that he would get himself caught right away, you know? And we don't usually ever talk about this, but that's kind of where my head went with this case. Yeah. And I mean, especially, you know, with the cigarette burns and stuff like that, like if you left a cigarette butt behind, it'd be over because now we have DNA. So we'd be like, oh. And and everybody vapes. Right. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I'm just saying like, there are some aspects where it's like, man, you would probably be very much accelerated. But then there's also the question of like, well, how long would he actually get away with it? Like there'd be carpet fibers and all the stuff that like in the sixties, they were like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like really hope something pans out for us. We need a clue. Yeah. And even if he did this two decades later, you know, like, who knows? Like, who knows? All I can say is I hate that, you know, they lost four innocent lives, but at least he was doing it in the 60s. Because if he was a person in this day and age, it could have been worse. I don't even want to think about that. Just cut, 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 cut. (laughs) So, John, I have one more question, and then we'll get to where you are on the deadbolt test. The man and the woman who were having the affair, are they still married? I don't know. They didn't talk about it. (laughs) I would assume not. Well, you know what? I don't know how many of these people are actually still like with us at this point. You know what I mean? Because, right. you know, the sheriff yeah. was like 30 in 1968. You know, same with Bill Gibbons. Right. He was like 30 to 40 year old. So at least from what I could find in my research. So I don't know how many of these people mm-hmm. are still around. I will say in that time, though, it wouldn't shock me if they stuck together. You know what I mean? Because that was yeah. back when it's like you just don't get divorced. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. I just had to know. I just needed to know if you knew. Unfortunately, back then men could do, you know, terrible things. And it was a real like stand by your man culture. You know what I mean? And it's luckily, again, it's not like that anymore. But I can imagine that, you know, you probably called it in anonymously. And then if she ever did find out, she was like, I forgive you. I forgive you. sir." You know what I mean? So. All right, John. So I stand at a nine. Where do you go on this deadbolt test? Because I don't feel like this is a story that you're going to be checking your locks about at night. No. So for me, I'm going to put this at a seven. And the reason I'm going to put this at a seven is, again, I'm not this guy's demographic, right? Like he's not looking for me walking down the road by myself, but I have a wife. I have a daughter who will someday be 14 or 20. You know what I mean? And this idea that you're in a community where this stuff is happening and it can just happen to anyone that for me is where I'm like, I would put this at a seven. Cause again, that's like kind of my worst fear. My worst fear is like something happens to the family unit and it's this random thing. You know what I mean? So I'm going to be strong. I'm going to put it at a seven. And the only other thing I wanted to say uh, about Leroy Martin was he did tell police that he had a specific type. So he was like, if you were a young, good looking woman, watch out because you're who I'm gunning for. If you're older or bigger or unattractive, you're safe. And I was like, 
what? Uh, just not that everything else that he did doesn't point to like complete monster and like sleaze ball, but to like have to make that point. I was He's like, really a sleaze ball. Yeah. I was like, you're a trash human. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it was a good case, John. Well, I'm glad that you liked it. I'm again, a little less graphic than the vampire of Sacramento. I I'll be honest. When I was researching, I wasn't expecting the part where he went back and revisited the bodies, but with his MO and stuff like that, I definitely felt like it was worth touching on. So thank you for bearing with me as we got through that. Oh yeah. I wish you would have had my audio of me going. <gasps> and then I read it ahead of time and I just shouldn't have. Cause I was <laughs> like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that is where we fall on the deadbolt test. Olivia is going to put this at a nine. I'm coming in and putting it at a seven, but we want to know where does Leroy Martin, the Gaffney strangler fall on your deadbolt test. You can let us know, reach out to us on Instagram, but check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter at check the locks. And if you are not in our Facebook group, it has been popping the last couple of, of days, like the last week, people are in there just talking about the cases. That's my favorite part is when we put out an episode and people are like, Oh, this happened in my state. We have a couple of people mm-hmm. who live in Ohio that were like, yeah, this is really creepy. Like, you know what I mean? So it's always really cool to see people kind of react to those stories from a personal place or from being from that area. So if you're not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We're in there interacting every single day. We would love to interact with you. Olivia, I don't know about you. I know I say this every week. This was a dark story. I need a little sunshine. What you got for us? You got a five-star review? I do. I have a five-star review. This week's five-star review comes from Kim from Clay, Alabama. Um, And Kim said, I got your podcast from a reference from another one. True crime is my genre. I like an upbeat conversation with proper references to seriousness of murder. Y'all are perfect. Been binge listening. Keep doing what you do. So thank you, Kim, for leaving us that five-star review. Yes, Kim, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to leave us that review. We really appreciate you leaving those kind words. And, you know, again, just means so much to us that you would actually take that time to pull out your phone, go to the link, leave your review and let us know what you think. So we really appreciate it. We are so glad that you're enjoying the show. We would absolutely love to send you something. Again, reach out to us on Instagram, check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter at check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, drop us a line there. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you're not a social person, totally fine. Head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click the email button. Send us an email. Let us know where to send you some stuff and we'll get some keychains, stickers. I got buttons. I got all sorts of stuff that we'd love to get sent out to you. So Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review right on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Well, they should hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our home show page, scroll all the way down where you see the five stars, click all five stars and leave us a little review and tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave that review. I know we talk about this every single week, but it does really help us to grow our audience, our family. We get in front of new listeners by getting into show recommendations and things of that nature. So if you have left us a five star review, again, thank you so much for doing that. If you have not and you would like to, we would love to hear from you at Apple Podcasts or there's a link in the show notes. You can use that as a cheat code. Olivia, guess what? We have a voicemail. Week three, we got a voicemail. Oh my gosh. Hi, John and Olivia. This is Carissa in Iowa. And I just wanted to let you know that I have not only enjoyed every episode that you have put out there on the airwaves, but recommended your podcast to two friends within the last two days. Keep them coming, loving it, listening to it. Hope everything's going well for you in NOLA. And I miss you and your smile and your hugs, Olivia. Have a great day. That sounded like a personal voicemail. 
It was a personal voicemail. Thank you, Carissa. And she's actually really active in our Facebook group, too. I used to work with Carissa. I love and adore her. So thank you. That just like made my week. Well, that is awesome. And Carissa, thank you for taking the time to leave us that voicemail. Again, just hearing our listeners and you know, getting to know what you guys think of the show. And, you know, honestly, if it's a question or if it's something that we could do better, or if you've got feedback on a case, maybe we missed something. We want to hear what you have to say. So please, please reach out. Carissa, again, thank you. We would love to send you some stuff. Reach out to us. Let us know where to get it to you at. We've already listed all the ways and you're in the Facebook group. So let us know. We will get some stuff sent out to you right away. And thanks for sharing with your friends. Like that's the best way to get our podcast name out there is telling your friends and family about it. A hundred percent. And I'm also just hoping for the day that I get a voicemail where someone's like, I miss your hugs and your kisses. <laughs> it feels like it always should be like, my dearest Olivia, I'm writing you. <laughs> I'll <laughs> leave you a voicemail next week, John. You get to throw your voice. Hi. So <laughs> Hi, my name's Olivia. Yeah. Well, don't use your real name. That'll give it oh. away. <laughs> See, that's why I wouldn't get away with anything. But again, we truly do appreciate it. And thank you so much for sharing and and letting people know what we do. And if you want to support what we do, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. We have a lot of great tiers, exclusive stickers, coffee mugs, t-shirts, all sorts of stuff that you only get from being a patron. And I did just want to take a moment and shout out some of our patron members. Big shout out to Lisa, Gail, Stephanie, Trish and Pam, thank you so much for sponsoring us and helping us keep the lights on. We appreciate you guys more than you would know. And if you can't financially support the show, we 100% understand exactly like we were talking about with Carissa's voicemail. Sharing the show with your friends and family means just as much, if not more, right? The whole goal of us doing the show is to get out in front of as many people as we can. So if you hang out with us every week, you're sharing the show, you're letting your friends know what you think, again, from the bottom of our hearts, We honestly and truly appreciate it so, so much. That is all that we have for you for this week's episode. Make sure that you are subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you again next week. Check.